Welcome to the Tim Fowler Show, where production is paramount and we discuss the tools, time, and people associated with getting jobs done and making a profit. On today's episode of the Tim Fowler Show, we will be having a conversation with Tim with the help of special guest Tim Fowler from Modeler's <laughs> Advantage in Linthicum, Maryland. Alongside Tim Fowler, I'm your co-host Steve Wheeler. Here is the Tim Fowler Show. Well, hello everyone in a little different format today. I am Steve Wheeler and welcome to the Tim Fowler Show. As Tim normally says, he loves getting new ideas. So if you have any new ideas for the podcast or topics you would like to hear People talk about, please send them to Tim at RemodelersAdvantage.com. So on this episode today, we are going to actually flip the script and turn the tables. It seems that every time that I get to see Tim at a Remodelers Advantage event, a trade show, or preparing for this show on the phone, I find myself continuously picking his brain on everything surrounding production and basically all aspects of the uh, remodeling industry. So in one of our last discussions in Las Vegas during the International Builder Show, light bulb went off and we figured we should capture one of these many conversations and this became the genesis of today's podcast. So as Tim spends most of his time on this show asking other people questions and looking for their insight on various topics, he spends most of his remaining time traveling the country and working and consulting with remodeling companies to improve the production side of their business. He also spends a fair bit of time speaking at various trade shows and associations. Bottom line, Tim has a lot of information to share. So we thought it would make sense to put him on the hot seat today and see if we can can't recreate one of our many conversations we've had over the years. So Tim Fowler, for the past 17 years, has worked shoulder to shoulder with hundreds of remodeling companies, large and small, to help improve profits profits by creating smooth, efficient production systems. Tim has interviewed and worked with countless owners, employees, stakeholders, and vendors as he travels across the continent, consulting with some of the most successful remodelers in the industry. As a senior consultant and master of production for Remodelers Advantage, Tim's field and business ownership experience is vital to his additional role as facilitator for owner and production manager groups. In addition to being a published author and very popular industry speaker, Tim is the host of this show, The Tim Fowler Show, a weekly podcast focusing on improving the bottom line through production training. So welcome to the show, Tim. Well, thank you, Steve. This is a little bit intimidating being the guest. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a little bit scared here. (laughs) Hey, I've got some hard questions coming at you. Oh, yeah. Tim, for everybody out there, if let's just take it back just a little bit and let's talk about how we got here as uh, to the Tim Fowler show. So a little kind of a, a snapshot of your history in the building industry uh, to now. Okay. So growing up, my dad did a lot of projects around the house. He was a professor at the University of Maryland, so it wasn't his work. But he was uh, constantly building things, built cabinets, built stuff in, uh, painted a lot, fixed a lot of walls, things like that. So I was around it growing up, and I actually 
Uh, I built a kayak when I was in uh, high school. I built a small sailboat in high school. Wow. Nothing fancy now. Nobody go ooh and ah. Just but it very floated. simple. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and actually, and so then really not never intended to be in the construction industry, but uh, that that kind of background, I went to college. I have a degree in agriculture and uh, just as things developed, I, uh, I thought, well, I can do this in construction. So being sort of a, uh, I don't know, maybe an optimist, I got in the business and learned as I went. And you started off as a carpenter assistant? Uh, I started, I guess I started as an assistant to a fella that, of a good friend of mine, uh, was doing what we now call flipping houses down okay. in a south, small and south town, uh, small town in South Georgia, and uh, he paid a guy by the hour to remodel, and I, you know, he paid me by the hour. Now everybody, listen, five bucks an hour, okay? <laughs> <laughs> but that's how I got started. But at some point, you know, somebody said, "Hey, can you do this?" And I said, "Sure, I can do that." Yeah, and I. Stuck my neck out and went for it. So this is kind of a two-part question, but so as you were building the kayak, building the uh, sailboat, did you truly enjoy it? I mean, that was a passion of yours, building things, putting things together. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Models. We did we did balsa wood model airplanes. Yeah. We did plastic models. We did uh, just, uh, you know, forts out in the backyard. You know, there was just my brother my middle brother and I just seemed like we were constantly building something out of something. And it wasn't always, you know, fine finished product. It might be sticks and an old parachute that we owned, you know, became a tent. Yeah. So fast forward and you've, you're working years in the, uh, in the remodeling industry, you know, for the person flipping houses, but fast forward more than that. Um, when did you really start to focus on production and improving efficiencies? Well, I think it's basically, uh, you know, being in production, probably most everybody that's in production that's listening to this, you know, we're inherently problem solvers. And so anybody that's good in production is a problem solver. You know, we can do the easy stuff if it goes together nicely, cool but we are good at solving problems. And so uh, when I was a production manager at Hopkins and Porter in Potomac, Maryland, my boss uh, stuck his head in my office door and said, hey, I volunteered you to help to put together a training program for the NARI, local NARI organization. And I honestly looked at him and I said, why did you do that? I had no idea that I had any capability. Now, I was already a speaker. I had done some speaking at various things, but I had no idea. And he said, don't worry about it. You'll be great. So I teamed up with three other people and we put together a training program for lead carpenters for the DC Metro NARI chapter. And as they, the other three people sort of dropped out of the process, I, again, was looking at, like, what could be better? What could be better? What could be better? And so that's what put me into it. And then at a certain point, I just love helping people, too. That's sort yeah. of, if you look at my personality profile, one of my big motivators is helping people. So as I 
got the opportunity, I said, you know what, if I do this full time, I can have fun solving problems, but I can also help people with their, not only with their businesses, but I love helping the production person as well. The, the, the guy or gal in the field who's maybe struggling with their boss a little bit or just can't figure out why the boss cares so much about money when really it's about the product for yeah. most of us. So that, that's a, there's a couple of different motivators. There so for me. what was the company you were working for when the uh, Hopkins and Porter? Hopkins and Porter in Potomac, Maryland. Okay, so um, when did you first start to, I, I guess, as you're developing the program and using the practices that you're uh, also developing, when did you kind of see that it yielded results or see improvement? What did that look like? Well, it should be stated pretty clearly that they already had a really good lead carpenter system working there when I became the production manager. So I tell people that I, I stepped into the dream job where – there were four, five, six, seven different lead carpenters already out there on the job sites making, uh, you know, doing their job properly. So I, I just had to learn uh, all the things about profit and uh, customer satisfaction and those kinds of things because that was what was really new to me. But the company had really good systems in place already. Many of the things that I share with companies now came directly you know, from their system of doing doing the work. So had you worked for any companies before that did not have practices that were tight or focus on letting people or letting you know about the profit? No, I, I had only worked for myself. The, the move, I worked for myself in small town in South Georgia, and we had moved to the D.C. area with the idea that I would then work for somebody okay. to kind of uh, not, not only make a little bit more money, but just felt like that would be an easier thing for the family. So we're not going to age you here, but uh, <laughs> from the time you started, what do you look at as, you know, the biggest change in the industry as a whole? And it could be tools, awareness, necessities of change. But w what do you think has been the biggest difference? So I think that the biggest shift has been from basically what we call the, the carpenter in the truck to full-blown businesses. And so, you know, I think back when I started, this was late 80s when I was, you know, in, or middle 80s when I was in business for myself. A lot of folks, just, you know, me and two other guys, we built houses, we did all this kind of thing. And then I think what has really changed in our industry is that more people are interested in actually creating a business that is truly a business. In other words, they, you know, have systems, there's a business owner that has people working for them. They're not necessarily in the field. And so we've seen that over the years, I think. Uh, trade shows have really helped push that. I think consultants have really pushed that. For example, when I started doing consulting uh, back in 2000, uh, probably you could count on one hand, maybe two hands, the number of consultants there were out there for this industry. And I was pretty much the only one that did production consulting. Now, if you go looking, there are just maybe 100 out there that do it. And there are others that do some of the consulting. I think I still have kind of a corner on some of the market on that, but that indicates that 
the business has truly become a business as opposed to just a one-man band or sole operators. Yeah, and so that's a great point. So, Tim, not to get too complex with this question, but, you know, over the years, if you you say, you know, it's gone from um, two guys in a truck to, you know, large businesses, you know, I remember, you know, my house is from 1925, so I remember going to the basement and seeing – um, in, a, in some parging, it said Joe and Sam 52. And, you know, uh-huh. Joe and Sam, it's like, were they looking at net profit and stuff? You know. <laughs> so, Tim, what do you think the cause was in that shift? What was the cause for it to shift from two men in a truck to larger businesses of today? You know, I'm I'm not really certain. I think that at least some of it was just that some companies – we're really making it happen. A lot of uh, the evolution came, at least in my world, uh, around the D.C. area. Uh, companies were starting to develop and, and through the trade organizations like NARI and Remodelers Council, they were sharing that information with other people. And I think what happened was, like agriculture, the seed got planted in various people. And you can imagine if I'm, uh, you know, a sole operator with my pickup and some buddies and I meet somebody who actually made a hundred thousand dollars in a year, I might be really interested in finding out like, how do you do that? Although there were many who said, you know what, I'm good with what I'm doing. And that's certainly acceptable as well. But I think there was that that transformation basically from people seeing others uh, doing it and then kind of wanting a piece of that pie as well. Yeah. So um, what what when you're consulting with companies, when you look on the smaller side, what are common things that people common hurdles of smaller businesses and then the common hurdles of the larger companies? Wow. So um in some ways, the hurdles are all the same. It's just there are there are just different uh, focal points. So I've come up with about twelve or thirteen things from a production standpoint that you have to do for it to work well. And whenever I work with a company there tends to be a few of those things they're doing and then a few that they're not doing. And then I'll go with another company and it's a completely different list of what they're not doing or they're not doing them very well. And so I think, I think for the small company, it's the struggle mostly with balancing like how much does the owner sell and then still stay involved with the field because there's still that attachment to the production side of things. And sometimes they've got their hands too much in it and they're, they're short circuiting some really good people who would take initiative and who would run the jobs for them if they let them. That tends to be one of my questions when a business owner says, well, my guys just won't take responsibility for the, for their jobs. I tend to ask like, well, are the, is it them or is it you not letting them, do that. And that, but as the companies get bigger and bigger, what I tend to see is more just a people management problem. Uh, 
the business owners don't know how to get the best out of other people. And if you stop and think about it, every, almost every industry except ours, if you move into a management role, you are trained on how to manage people. Mm-hmm. As a, and then our business is just like we just deal with people the same way we've always dealt with people. Yeah. And as the company gets bigger, we, we lose that touch. There's more people. There's more personalities. There's less uh, synergy between the person we hired and the person that we are. And so learning how to manage people, absolutely critical. And that, again, one of the blessings in my life is that there are all these people around me that are reading books that are talking about these things. And I've had the blessing of reading six or eight really good people management books that have helped me understand what it's like to manage a building, a business, even though I wouldn't go back to it if I can avoid it. But I think that's the biggest challenge for larger companies is really good people management skills. And do you think that a lot of people should know that going into starting a company or, you know, a lot of people just kind of start the business to be their own owner, but at some point you have to manage people. And that, that is the hardest part of it all. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, I've been thinking recently that uh, there are two big, really big struggles. One being the management of people. And I, fortunately, I think you can get some really good insights from uh, books and things. The other thing is just human resources become a huge issue. And I've actually been wondering recently, like maybe that ought to be like the third or fourth hire within a company. And unfortunately, typically we're not selling enough or producing enough work to pay for a full-time human resource person. Yeah. But with the, the labor market, the way it is nowadays, uh, somebody has to be spending 20 or 20 hours a week looking for new employees, motivating people, training people, uh, improving the climate, the culture, that kind of stuff. And business owners typically don't have the capacity or the time. And so I've sort of, you know, it used to be like you hired a bookkeeper, then you hired an off or a lead carpenter, then you hired an office manager. Yeah, there then was you, a template. It was, it was all that way. And I'm going like, wait a minute, maybe <laughs> human, re- human resource needs to be moved up the scale a little bit. But um, yeah, and, and, and I'm even exploring uh, going to some seminars on human resource mm-hmm. so that I can share it more effectively with my clients. But I know they're out there. The challenge is that a lot of us are kind of snobbish about our business and we go like, oh, the remodeling business is different than every other business. And I beg to differ. I yeah. think business is business. You just, you're just not going to find any seminars on human resource specifically for remodeling companies. Yeah. But go to some training, get, get some of the big picture ideas, and then, then incorporate that into your business. And, and I think people are going to do much better that way. Yeah. So uh, one thing I always do when we chat, I always just kind of one-off throw some certain topics, certain things that people face, issues that companies face that I talk to. Uh, You know, I talk to remodelers every day as well. And just just common uh, problems that people face would be 
you know, projects consistently going over budget. If I was uh, to say to you, what, you know, what, what's one line you would say to that? Oh, I can only have one line. No, you can have a few lines. <laughs> it's your show. <laughs> so one of the things, the thing that I try to emphasize with people is, is really look honestly for the cause. And there's three causes that I see. One is inefficiencies in the field. And that tends to be the one business owners are looking at most. The second one is just bad estimating. And so what I try to do to, you have to be careful to differentiate between the two. Is it in the field or is it in the estimating? And the way I like to look at it, it's a percentage game. So if you have an estimate for framing and you're 100% over budget, I'm going to tell you that's an estimating problem unless you have absolutely lazy people out in the field. 100%, it's estimating. Yeah. You start getting down, and I don't know what the exact percentages are, but I, when you start getting down to 10 or 20% off, that could very well be a field inefficiency. Yeah. And so that's what I would say. And then the third one is just bad markup. Yeah. You know, if you don't have the right yeah. markup, you can get everything else dead on and you're still going to lose your shirt. So look at those three things yep. uh, and, and, you know, try to pinpoint them. Yeah. I knew you'd be good at this, Tim. All right. So change orders, eating profits, or just having an overall just issue with change orders. All right. So, um, wow, this is, could be a podcast all on its own. <laughs> I, in fact, we've done one this, we this. but anyway, but there's a lot of different things, but probably the biggest one is just the, the, lack of getting the same markup on a change order that we get on a regular contract mm. or even a bigger markup. And I'm not sure it's it. The, the problem happens somewhere between the contractor's ears. It's a mental problem. They it don't is. really think like, wow, this change order is a problem for us. We should be paid more for it. Uh, and so forth like that. So I guess that would be, probably the biggest one in terms of the change orders or maybe not getting them written up at all. Yeah. That not written up. Problem. We're yeah, already here. Pay yeah. less, you know? Yeah. Um, Just bad thinking. So a couple other scenarios here. How about Lee sure. Carpenter is good at his or her job, but not looking on to take on any additional work or responsibility. I guess not climb. Yeah. I don't, you know, this is kind of a, a, a weird one because we tend we tend to promote people, and I, I'd like to put the word promote in air quotes, but we tend to promote people um, against our better judgment. In other words, we take a very, very good carpenter and we say, wow, we need you as a lead carpenter. And they just don't want to manage a job. Let's just, they don't want it. They've told us that. Yeah. And yet we say, oh, you'll be really good at it. And they're not. The same thing happens with a great lead carpenter. And we say, oh, man, you'd make a great production manager or a project manager. And the, the, the roles are different. So what I would say is just have a really good detailed job description with responsibilities and really evaluate people based on the job description, not on their ability to do a previous role in the company. I think that would be that's probably one of the most dangerous things that we have uh, happen to us. 
Yeah, and the best thing we could do is have each position with an A player. Yes, know, indeed. Instead of consistently And, and I think, up. too, the challenge for us in that is making people feel like they're an A player. That's why I like to put promotion in air quotes. I mean, who said that being a great craftsman is a lesser role than being a lead carpenter? Not yeah. me. Yeah. It wasn't me because I think, you know, if someone is a fabulous craftsman, you, you want to hang on to that person and somebody else, like, I'm going to tell you right here and now, I am a fabulous lead carpenter, but there's a million people that can do carpentry better than me. Maybe wow. not a million, 50,000 <laughs> 50, at least. I'm, I'm telling you, I yeah. can get it done. I can do the craft, You're but I am good. not the best craftsman in the world, but I am an amazing lead carpenter. Yeah. Good. Um, so, Two more here. Production team is not buying into a new technology. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Okay, I am going to tell you my age. I'm 62 years old. Uh, I did take to computers fairly quickly back in my middle 40s. I thought it was a pretty cool thing. Uh, So, But I am challenged technology-wise. And so, you know, I really promote technology, but I sure am glad that my boss uh, hasn't asked me to use it too much. Uh, so getting people to buy in, I, I, we, we did a podcast recently with a fella who illustrated it perfectly for, for us. And that was the, uh, RFI, uh, podcast. And he said he'd go out to the job site. His, his older lead carpenters would say, what about this? He'd ask him a question and he would get an iPad out or a, a tablet out and he'd say, Let's fill in the RFI. And I think there's really only one way to do that is to show people, get them to do it, and then get them to experience how much better it is to do it. And uh, it for some people, it takes longer uh, to pick it up. Uh, it's just consistently pushing it. The other thing is I would highly recommend that you do make some exceptions for some people. Hmm. So again, if you're going, if you like, if you have a great lead carpenter that really is challenged technology wise, don't, don't just force them, you know, to make that happen, find out where their limits are and then make some exceptions. Again, I'll go back to this book called first break all the rules. Uh, And it's a great, they have a great illustrations in there about some amazing people who they made exceptions for, and they didn't say everybody has to do it exactly the same way. Obviously, as many as possible, we want doing this the same way, but there will be some times when you want to allow some exceptions. Yeah. So one I I heard a few weeks ago, I had an issue with this, and I know that other people do. As you go from, you know, the five stages of growth, as you start to take the belt off, well, it's getting out of the field is one. And then staying out of the field. I, I think it's really a, an overall start of the production process, but taking the tool belt off. Yeah, really, you, really, really critical. Um, and then I think you take it off, but then the, the challenge, like, like we said before, is learning how to get it done through other people. Mm-hmm. And the, the thing that many managers and business owners do that's a mistake is they have people out in the field and they they go out and they put the belt back on yes. as opposed yes. to saying, okay, 
I'm not going to put the belt back on. You are going to get, you are going to learn this or do this. And, uh, you know, it's, um, it's important that you do that. This is a kind of a little bit different illustration, but I remember a really difficult client where I had to go do a final completion list with them. And I looked my boss in the eye and I said, I'm not going. (laughs) And my, you know, my boss looked back at me and said, Oh yes, you are. You know, and so I did. And, uh, you yeah. know, it, it was that was the right thing for him to do was yeah. to not let me off the hook. Yeah. Now, it yeah. didn't involve the tools, but it's the same analogy. Yes. I would not have done it unless he had said, yes, you have to do that. So I think that's part of that. And what's that mindset of, you know, I think it's that it's not very much a growth mindset, but I can do it better. Or what makes people throw the tools back on? I mean, it, it, people manage. Well, I but, think it's just habit. I think yeah. I think we uh, it could be that we could do it better. I think it's also the idea that we got to get it done yeah. now, yeah, yeah. both from a financial reason and from a, uh, you know, next job reason. But here's what I would kind of say about that. And we we talk a lot about training on the podcast, but. We just have to stop complaining about the skills gap. Put 1% or 2% in every annual budget for training and then get busy training. I use this analogy. People go like, but all of our costs will go up. Yes, they will. But stop and think about the electrical union. Who pays for the training? The clients do. Now, the contractor does. But the clients pay. Yeah. We've got to get our clients to start paying for training yeah. for the people that we're bringing in. And that would mean when I'm out on the job site, if someone's not doing the job right, we stop. I train them how to do it. I watch them do it. It takes some time. It costs us money. But we have to do that in order for the business to be successful. Yeah. Well, you've started answering one of my last questions and one of my favorite ones that I've asked you. You're one of the first people that, uh, I don't don't want to say fought back, but really challenged the issue of the labor shortage or how we talk about it in terms of, you know, I've, when I talk to remodelers now, I say, what's the biggest issue in your business besides labor? Because I have to move on. But so if you could just kind of give your take once more, it's the training, but what's the change in mindset on finding good help? that that term. Yeah. I, you know, first of all, I mentioned it already. Somebody has to be always looking back when I was a production manager, we could put an ad in the paper, get five or six good resumes in. And it was no big deal. Uh, those days are gone. Uh, we just have to admit they're gone. And so we have to continually be looking. I think the other thing that I see kind of a vestige of the old days is, we want good help, five years experience, pickup truck, <laughs> and tools worth 10 grand. Uh, and you know what? Forget it. You know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, first of all, I was a lead carpenter with no experience. Well, maybe one year experience. I had my own business. Now, if you find the right people, and we've interviewed people on the podcast, you know, two years in, they're a project manager. It's like you find the right people train them for a couple of years and then you've got gold. And so we have to get away from this. Everybody has to come to me 
with certain skills and certain experience. The other thing that has to really important is that uh, we used to kind of keep people in a position for, uh, you know, a long time. Like yep. you'd start with us and you'll be a laborer here for a couple of years. Yeah. And then we'll have you do some carpentry work. That has to absolutely stop. And I think one of the best examples I've seen of that is case remodeling design in D.C. Yeah. Where they hire someone into their warehouse. I think Bruce talked about this on our podcast. And then like within three months, they're saying, okay, where are we going to put them now? So they're not stuck in the warehouse for six years, but they're always looking for where can they move? And they might move straight to a project manager job, not likely, but they might if they have those skills and qualities. And all of us old timers, we're going like dig ditches, move lumber, cut a few boards, you know, nail decking down. And then after about eight or nine years, you can be a lead carpenter. And that we've just got to get away from that. The millennials won't have it. The millennials <laughs> won't take it. Yep. They won't do it. And then I think uh, just get out there. I've asked people a number of times, like, what's your marketing budget for new projects? And they'll say, oh, our marketing budget is 3% of our annual sales. And I go, great. What's your marketing budget for new employees? And they look at me like I'm dumb. And so it's like, okay, we have to put some money in there. How are we going to attract people to this business? How, what are we going to do actively to convince parents that this is a great business to be in? To convince hot college graduates who graduate. I'm off a lot of our business owners in network in the, in the remodelers advantage network are business owners like myself graduated with a degree in agriculture and I'm in construction. Yeah, me too. You know? And so where, where are the recruiting on the campuses that go out there and go like, man, dude, you're going to make about $45,000 a year. You stick with me. You could make 80. Oh yeah. And, and, and 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 we can, and more. And so we got, I don't know, I guess you can tell I'm kind of passionate. about. That's why I asked him. (laughs) (laughs) So just to finish off here, you talk about books a lot and you mentioned some great books. So I figured here's a good time. Just kind of rattle off some of your favorites. Okay. So uh, First Break All the Rules by Marcus Buckingham is a really, really good book on managing people. The Great Game of Business by Jack Stack. I resisted this book for years because I thought it was only about handing out money. It is not. It is a great book on uh, on how to help people win in your business. The third one is The Oz Principle by Rogers, Connor, and a few others. The subtitle of it is Developing a Culture of Accountability mm. in Your Business, and it is fantastic. Again, uh how to manage people in a way that brings productivity uh, to light. Um, those are the three that just come to mind right off the top of my head. Uh, almost oh, the one minute manager series, yeah. but probably the best one in my opinion is the one minute manager meets the monkey. Oh. And uh, if you read that book, yeah. it'll just, it'll really, and you do what he says, you got to put these things into practice it'll really help you be a better manager of people within your company. So there's a number of other ones that are out there. 
Uh, but those are probably the top four on my list. So um, we're going to wrap up here, Tim, but I just want to thank you for uh, all of the knowledge that you you know, give to all the people across the country, consulting, speaking, and on this show. So thank you. I love being a part of this show. And uh, as, as I would normally say, uh, once again, we would like to thank Tim Fowler for joining us today on the show. And thank you for listening to another episode of The Tim Fowler Show. And remember, we are working really, really hard to eliminate that nasty little phrase, it is what it is, from your vocabulary and the vocabulary of your team. This has been another episode of The Tim Fowler Show. Want to hire Tim and fast-track your growth? Visit remodelersadvantage.com consulting to learn more. And if you'd like more information about Roundtables, our world-class peer advisory program, please send me an email at steve at remodelersadvantage.com. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show and comment on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.